0: The opinions expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of History, Carleton University, its staff, faculty, or students. You're listening to Patterson 406, an occasional series of podcasts from the Department of History at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Hi, my name is Sean Graham. I'm a professor in the History Department at Carleton, and this fall I've been responsible for organizing the Shannon Lectures in History. The Shannon Lectures are a series of thematically linked public lectures offered by the department each autumn and made possible through the Shannon donation a major gift from Lois M. Long in memory of her parents James Buchanan Long and Ida Mae Davidson. In today's episode, we hear from our second Shannon Lecture speaker this year, Steph Hamhofer of Bones, Stones, and Books.com, who is also a professional contracting archaeologist. Her talk is called Invented Fantasies, using social media to talk about pseudo-archaeology, and was first delivered on October 19th. Skeletons of giants in British Columbia? People using psychic abilities to find proof that the Empire of Atlantis included Nova Scotia? A cult in Quebec proposing aliens invented life on Earth? These sound like something you would find Dana Scully and Fox Mulder investigating in the X-Files. But as Steph Hamhofer tells us, she's not Dana Scully, she's an archaeologist. And why is she talking about aliens and giants? Because pseudo-archaeology, which includes all of these topics, is a real concern facing both archaeologists and non-archaeologists. These theories can be found in books, television shows, and on social media but their negative impacts reach far beyond these pages and screens. Thank you, thank you very much.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Steph, um, and thank you for coming to my talk entitled, Hashtag Invented Fantasies, Using Social Media to Talk About Pseudoarchaeology. archeology um, First and foremost, I just want to acknowledge the fact that <coughs> this talk is being held on traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin and Anishnabeg people, and I'm very grateful to be here today. Nope, nope, no microphone. Can everybody hear me at the back? Yeah. We're, we're good? Cool. <coughs> um, so just a, a quick overview about the kinds of things that we're going to talk about. I'll give you a little bit of an introduction to myself and my background, why am I here talking to you, and then we'll jump into what is pseudo-archaeology, uh, why should we be concerned about it, what are the harms that can come from it, where are Canadians finding pseudo archeology online, social media, and how can archaeologists use social media to talk about pseudo-archaeology, and really archaeology in general. So, who am I? Um, I have very scribbled notes, so don't mind if I'm back and forth here. Uh, First and foremost, I was a first-generation student. I'm also a first-gen Canadian. I was the first in my immediate family to go to post-secondary and I mention that because I think there are a lot of other first gens out there who need to see the representation. I have an Associate of Arts degree in Criminology from Kwantlen Polytechnic University, it's a small university on the south coast of British Columbia. My Bachelor's is in Anthropology, I spent part of my time at UBC and then I transferred to the University of Alberta where I finished it up. And I have a Master's degree in Anthropology from the University of Toronto. And my master's research focused on a very archeologically rare style of glass bead, blown glass beads. Um, those are some of the beads that I studied. Not gonna lie, I bought this shirt because it looks like there are glass beads on it. I'm that much of a nerd. So my specialization is in bioarchaeology. Um, I am an archeologist with additional skills and knowledge in human osteology. but vast majority of the time I'm working just in, in archaeology, material archaeology. I've dipped my toes a little bit into the world of zoo archaeology, working with faunal remains. Uh, on the bottom left corner you can see a picture of me comparing a walrus scapula, walrus shoulder blade to my head. Um, I, I started using the hashtag head for scale because I did this quite often. And you can see the walrus is much bigger than my head. Um, as Sean has mentioned, I don't work for a university, I'm not an academic archaeologist, I work in what's called cultural resource management, heritage resource management. I've worked in Alberta, um, on the bottom right, that is me sitting in a giant waterline trench in Edmonton, um, pulling bison bones out of the wall. I have worked in Ontario, um, in that central photo that was from just outside of Ottawa, and we found Every single mosquito in Canada lived in that forest (laughs) and I was also in this photo in addition to my disgusting mosquito net I was literally surrounded by stinging nettle which is why I have that look on my face. My legs were pretty numb at this point. And I've also worked on the south coast of BC which is that top photo. I just recently moved back to BC, I was living in Ottawa for a number of years, I moved a month and a half ago Uh, so fast I haven't even changed my Ottawa phone number yet. Um, and my field school, I did a field school in Southern Spain. I worked on a Roman site in Southern Spain. So I run the website Bones, Stones, and Books. Um, I started it and I, I currently write for it with a few different goals in mind. First and foremost, um, I'd like to explore my research interests. Doing my own, or exploring my own research interests isn't part of my day-to-day work. I do it all in my own time. And I use my website to be able to put it out there. Um, for everyone else to read, anyone who's interested. Uh, I really enjoy sharing advice and the realities of archaeology with future archaeologists, students like many of you are today, um, representing as both a first-gen and a woman um, because representation matters. Um, So I write a lot of pieces that I call my unsolicited guides, so my unsolicited guide to conferencing, for example, and these are just tricks that and advice that I've picked up along the way through my years of of post-secondary that I, I like to share because I'm hoping it can benefit many of you whether you're first-gen or not. And I also like to use my website to be able to open up archaeology to non-archaeologists, to the general public, which is kind of the overall theme of, of the talk today. Um, I'm all about fight the paywall, take archaeology out from behind the paywall, open it up and, and let people who don't work in archaeology but are interested in archaeology know more about it. You know, how do we know what we know? How do we do what we do? That kind of thing. My current interests really revolve around the way that um, archaeology and archaeologists are represented in popular culture, like movies and comics and, and books. Um, I've had the chance to write a little bit about comics, um, I've written about Surviv- uh, Tomb Raider a couple of times. Um, who here has seen Thor Ragnarok? Show of hands, great. Right. So I wrote a paper for a class and I, I put it up on my website about how the, the actual story of, of Ragnarok, the Norse story of Ragnarok, was actually heavily influenced by climate change. So I like to, to do that kind of thing. It's, it's a lot of fun. And I think that is in part where my interest in pseudo-archaeology comes from. You know, representation matters. So what happens when archeology span is being misrepresented? What are the implications for this misrepresentation, how does it affect archaeology, archaeologists, but even more importantly is how is it affecting the people in the communities whose stories are being manipulated by pseudo-archaeologists. That's my whole thing. So what is pseudo-archaeology? There is no concise compact dictionary term um, but overall it refers to the misuse the misrepresentation and misinterpretation of of archaeology these invented fantasies and I got the title from invented fantasies from a a comment I saw in a a chat room where this guy was just going on a huge rant about archaeology and calling it uh, invented fantasies meanwhile supporting all sorts of wild pseudo arc theories he was going on about and I thought it was a great name I thought it was pretty accurate so these are theories that are are largely rejected by the archaeological community. They are based on very cherry-picked data, very unsubstantiated and sensationalist claims. Um, and you might have also heard of them through the names of cult archaeology, alternative archaeology, fringe archaeology, those are other names. There are far more colorful names out there that I will not say into a speaker but they exist. So, The goal that I have today is I really want to be able to give everybody here the tools you need to be able to to interpret or or identify pseudo-archaeology so that way when you leave the room today you'll be able to turn on a documentary or a a movie or read a book um, and be able to use what you've learned to identify if it's pseudo-arch or if it's legitimate archaeological research and it can be difficult even when you know all these things but I'm kind of hoping that what we talk about today can at least help you start to To understand it a bit more or look into it a bit more. So there are three core characteristics that you want to look for when you're trying to identify something as pseudoarchaeology. The first is that it is lacking in the use of the scientific method or it has incomplete or incorrect use of the scientific method. Pseudoarchaeologists really like to make a claim and draw a conclusion and then they look for data to support it instead of the other way around and this is often very cherry-picked data. Uh, for example, uh, we'll talk about, there was a television show, America Unearthed. Uh, anybody heard of it? It used to be on Netflix for a while. So America Unearthed was hosted, it was three seasons long, it was hosted by a forensic geologist named Scott Walter. Every single episode opened up with him receiving a text message or a phone call or a letter or an email with some great claim. He then spent the entire episode trying to prove this claim true. Um, Very rarely at the end of an episode was he like, oh wait, maybe that's not true. And somehow he always found evidence for the Knights Templar reaching North America before Columbus. Like that was his whole thing, and no matter what he was looking into, he always found evidence for it. Strange coincidence. Strange. The next characteristic, uh, pseudo-archaeologists like to give simplistic answers to complex questions. People are complicated, history is complicated, there are so many different factors that go into our decision making which results in material remains archaeologists study. Returning again to America Unearthed as an example in the very first episode of the show. It opens up with Scott Walter talking to a historian who claims that the Great Maya Collapse happened, the Maya disappeared from Mexico because they moved to Georgia in the United States. Mm-hmm. That is it. They are no longer Mexico. You don't see them in Mexico because they live (coughs) in Georgia. (coughs) In reality, there are many different factors that could have played a part in why the classic Maya civilization uh, collapsed. First of all, the Maya never disappeared. They are still alive. They are very vibrant. They are very active in Mexico. Um, Right now, a lot of the theories are pointing to climate change possibly being involved. Um, Droughts, and droughts can lead to food shortages, food shortages can lead to fighting between uh, communities, between political centers, etc. Many different aspects. They did not simply move to Georgia. Conveniently, the site that they're talking about in Georgia is kept behind government fencing. Nobody can actually access it, so, you know, there's that too. Which leads me into the third characteristic pseudo-archaeology often presents itself as being persecuted by or at odds with the archaeological community Um, they like to use sort of keywords or key phrases the mainstream is a big one they refer to professional archaeologists as the mainstream look for phrases like hidden history um, hidden truth truth needs to be revealed (laughs) controversial knowledge that nobody wants you to see government cover-ups these are all big parts of pseudo-archaeology. You can see here in this example, this is from a chat room that I spent some time on in line reading and wishing I hadn't read. Um, And this individual is expressing their opinion that the Smithsonian is hiding artifacts, destroying records, erasing records, removing things from public view because they need to protect some secrets. Those are all very common. So we've covered the characteristics. Now we'll talk about the categories. There are three main categories of pseudo-arch theories. Um, these are all sort of based on a paper that doctors David Anderson and Jeb Card wrote in 2012. They are big into anti pseudo they have done some really wonderful work, some really amazing books. I highly recommend their work to you. The first theory, our first category of theories are ancient aliens theories. So ancient aliens theories revolve around the idea that ancient human constructs, structures, arts, etc were far too advanced to have been created by humans who were living at the time. Uh, typically, they had to have been they were either created. these structures were either created by a highly advanced race or species or um, alien or these races and species and aliens, that's all common terminology, they either created these structures or they gave humans the knowledge and the technology they needed to create the structures. Um, A lot of these stem from Eric von Daniken's work, He published Chariots of the Gods in 1968, and it was sort of the first major public claims um, over ancient astronaut and ancient aliens theories. Uh, For example, in his book he argues that the the Nazca Lines in Peru were uh, runways for alien spacecraft. His book was made into a documentary uh, and was actually nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary in 1971. So that's interesting. Um, and a lot of these ancient alien series, like I said, they sort of all descend from this. For example, the very first episode of the series, Ancient Aliens, was all about exploring von Daniken's ideas. Um, a famous example of an ancient alien theory would be what's referred to as the Star Child skull. Has anybody here heard of Star Child? So I'm not gonna show photos of human remains in this presentation. If you're curious to, to see these, to learn more about it, you can Google them. They're all very available on Google. The Starchild skull was a young child skull that was found in Mexico in 1930 um, with some severe deformities. Um, the skull found its way somehow into the hands of a gentleman named Lloyd Pye, who very publicly proclaimed that this was, in fact, an alien. Um, you know, to a Bioarch and, and a lot of physicians, when you look at the deformities, it looks like something a condition called hydrocephaly or progeria um, I'm not an alien but Pi claimed it was, and it has since been subject to numerous DNA testing and other tests. Some of the DNA exams were actually done in Vancouver, British Columbia, by a DNA uh, lab. And the results from all of these tests have been manipulated to support the idea that this was an alien. Um, You can look at the Star Child Project as their website. You can Google it, and they have all sorts of information on there. I really like their uh, deformity and hopes page here it's very uh, it reads as very you know haters will say it's not true um, for example these DNA results came back showing a lot of non-human DNA um, and instead of you know saying probably a lot of contamination this means that it was an alien um, looking at things like shape and thickness of the skull instead of uh, looking at it as a, a medical condition a congenital de- uh, condition they're taken to mean that this was in fact an alien that kind of thing The next category are religious and nationalistic movements. Um, These ones are pretty genuinely scary, I think. So archaeology has long been manipulated to support nationalist and religious movements. Um, Often these groups have some sort of theory they've constructed, and they try to use archaeology to support their theory. One example is the Satru Folk Assembly and their fight over the ancient one. so the AFA are actually white nationalists masquerading as a religious organization. They, they do actually have uh, legal recognition as a religious organization in the United States. When the Ancient One was found in Kennewick, Washington, and was misidentified as being Caucasian, uh, this was later um, corrected by dating and DNA, which showed he was in fact a 9,000-year-old Indigenous male, the AFA jumped on this. Um, on these claims that he was Caucasian. They tried to demand access to his remains and they claimed that he was one of the ancestors of their religion and proved that their ancestors had traveled to North America from Northern Europe. Luckily, they did not get access to the remains um, and the Ancient One was recently repatriated and reburied. Uh, In 2007, Facebook actually deleted their main page um, citing hate speech And in 2018, the Southern Poverty Law Center added the AFA to their list of hate groups. And the last category of pseudo-archaeological theories are what's called hyperdiffusionist theories. These are based on the idea that there was contact between cultures that had extreme distances between them, And the result of this contact was one culture transferred cultural traits deemed to advance the other. One example, this is a Canadian example, is Paul Chiasen and his claim that there was a pre-European Chinese settlement in Cape Breton. So Chiasen was out for a walk and he claimed to have found an unknown road leading to the top of Kelly's Mountain um, and at the top He says he found what he argues is a Chinese settlement. Um, There's wall structures and a gate, um, a courtyard, a cleared courtyard. He later added that he's found burials. Um, He does take tour groups up to the top of the mountain, but conveniently has difficulty finding the burials every time he goes up. So he made a big claim about this. And based on his claim, archaeologists did actually visit the site in, I think it was 2006, four or five archaeologists went up there. And what they found was that this previously unknown road that Chiasen argued was unknown, was actually very well known. Um, Parts of it had been built in the mid-20th century, other parts had been built as late as 1989. There was a hydrogeologist who, she was talking about how she used to use the road to get up to the top of the mountain fairly frequently uh, when she was working up there. These possible walls were actually probably related to a fire road that was built, or um, there was a mining company that had cleared out the top for for drill testing. Um, That that was the area that was argued to be a a courtyard for the settlement. Um, Them just pushing dirt around might have made these wall type structures. This is a, a photograph. Uh, from a Walrus article showing some of the walls. um, And then other cut stones that were argued to be part of walls. Um, The archaeologists pointed out that these were actually machine cut, (coughs) they weren't hand cut. Despite all this, uh, Chiasen has published two books on the topic. The first one here, The Island of Seven Cities, um, these are excerpts here from his book. This is discussing this particular site and him making his claims that it was a a Chinese settlement, him trying to make his argument. In his second book, uh, called Written in the Ruins, he examines a different site also on Cape Breton that he also thinks was a Chinese settlement, and he argues that the Mi'kmaq people were actually influenced by these Chinese settlers, and you can see this influence in their clothing, in their customs, that kind of thing. Pseudoarchaeological theories, they don't neatly fit into all of these categories. There's often a lot of overlap between them, um, but we can sort of largely sum them into these, these different categories. So, where can we find pseudoarchaeology? What are the, the types of places where people can, can access this? Uh, to be honest, absolutely everywhere. Um, Anywhere you're looking for information, anywhere you're looking for entertainment, something to watch, you can find it. You can find it on Netflix. This is something that's currently on Netflix, but you can see, (coughs) yes, we watched part of it. You find it on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime is loaded with pseudo-arc documentaries and pseudo-arc sort of themed movies. Um, One of my favorite things to do is I really like to watch all these awful movies and just, you know, tear them apart. Um, I do it sometimes on Twitter. I call it "Bad Archaeology Movie Night." Have a lot of fun with that. Um, And you can find them in bookstores. These are some photos I took at uh, chapters. In every chapters you go to, they will have a section under the New Age area entitled "Controversial Knowledge." There's that (laughs) that keyword again. You can find all sorts of books um, books there. And you know. To be completely honest, I will never blame anyone for being attracted to pseudo-archaeology, for reading it, for watching it. Uh, you know, for non-archaeologists especially who are interested in archaeology, this is what they have easy access to, right? You saw those books on the chapter's bookshelf, you see it on Netflix and, and Prime. Um, Crave seems to be pretty good for no pseudo so far. Um, but it's what they have access to. And It's also because we as archaeologists are not doing a great job of communicating archaeology. We're not getting enough of of our information out there. We're not sharing enough of ourselves with people. (coughs) So, you know, conferences aren't the most accessible. They're expensive. They're in wild locations sometimes. And to be honest, they're not overly inviting for somebody who's not an archaeologist but curious about archaeology. If I wasn't an archaeologist, I wouldn't go to a conference. It's ridiculous. Um, and then other times, part of the issue is that we as archaeologists, we speak with too much jargon. We try to come across as, as knowing, uh, sounding like we know what we're talking about. So we use all these fancy $10 words instead of translating them into the $2 words, you know? So this is a book, uh, a recent book, again, by Eric Von Daniken, our, our ancient astronaut guy, talking about a visual tour of alien influence in the ancient world. And I saw this book on the shelf and I was flipping through it. This is actually a great book. He uses a lot of photos that really support the arguments he's trying to make. And yes, they're, they're wild arguments, and they're, they're complete pseudo-arc, but he still is writing them in a very easy to understand manner. Of, like His whole book's very much suited for a non-archaeological audience. So you know I honestly, I can't blame anybody for picking this up and flipping through it and then being like, wow, like, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's laid out all these arguments I can understand. He's using photos to support it, and it is what it is. So, this one's fun, Um, spending a lot of time online, social media, uh, and my website, when we talk about pseudo-archaeology, I can guarantee 99% of the time someone pops up saying, you know, people don't actually believe that stuff, even just in conversation with with friends and family. the other morning I was talking to a CBC reporter who was quite interested in this and she literally said exactly that. She's like, you know, does anybody actually believe this? And the truth is that, yes, people do believe this. This is the 2008 results, uh, 2018 results from the Chapman University um, Survey of American Fears. And these guys at Chapman University have run this survey every year for the past four years. This is the, It's a much bigger survey. This is the paranormal section of the survey. Um, 57% of Americans believe that ancient advanced civilizations like Atlantis existed. Um, 41% believe that aliens have visited the earth in our ancient past. And these numbers have actually gone up every single year that the survey has been running. Last year in 2017, the number of people who believed uh, ancient aliens or aliens have visited the earth in the ancient past was 35%. And this year, it's risen to 41%. Um, For Atlantis, it went from 55% to 57%. Every single year, these numbers are increasing. And I wanted to know if Canadians believe in this. So I went about setting up an online survey, asking the same questions that the Chapman um, group asked, and then additional questions as well. Um, I asked about things like Oak Island, for example. Um, Who here has heard of Oak Island? Knows a little bit about Oak Island? Um, Yeah, it's a a very popular show and it's a very Canadian example. I was surprised that most of the people who responded had never heard of Oak Island, um, which gives me hope. So I asked the same questions. I also asked additional questions related to social media use and what I found is that uh, we Though it's not to the same degree, we do still believe, um, You know, 26% of us believe that places can be haunted. 11% of us believe aliens have visited the earth in the ancient past. 10% believe civilizations like Atlantis once existed. So much lower numbers, but the belief is still there. And I'd be really actually curious to run the survey again next year and see if those numbers have changed at all. One of the questions I asked that the Chapman survey did not ask was, do you believe that humans in the past built stone pyramids and built megalithic and monumental structure yourself or, or themselves? Do you believe people built these? 18% um, do not believe people built stone pyramids and megalithic structures. Um, I found that actually quite surprising considering the lower numbers of people who believe in, in things like Atlantis <coughs> and ancient aliens. It's still surprising number. I was quite surprised to see this. So, what are the harms of pseudoarchaeology? Um, archeology In these next images, there's no photos of human remains, um, but there is kind of some pretty gross language, so just be warned about that. What are the harms of pseudo-archaeology? What's the harm in believing this kind of thing or watching these for silly entertainment? Um, first and foremost, racism. They are almost entirely, all of them are built on this idea that ancient peoples were incapable Of any sort of monumental achievement or culture without the involvement of an other. Um, Whether it's another culture or aliens, um, you know they needed to, they needed the help of aliens or these other cultures to advance themselves. And I swear 95% of the time um, these pseudo archaeological theories are targeting people who are not white. Um, So for example that's a on the left there is a tweet about a some recent ADNA work. Um, this article that they're tweeting about was rewritten and, and sort of manipulates the information for the article and argues that it proves that the original First Nations people in Canada were not white, or sorry, they were white and they came from European, or from Europe. Um, you can even, I mean, look at the hashtags or those keywords again, we've been told a lie, historical lies. The one on the right is a meme from the website Daily Stormer, which is a neo Nazi website. This was in reference to something called the Salutrian hypothesis. Has anyone here heard of the Salutrian hypothesis? You've heard of it because I've ranted to you about it. Um, so, the Salutrian hypothesis is this theory that uh, 22,000 years ago, people came from Europe across the Atlantic Ocean to North America, the Salutrian people. Um, and they're the ones who settled in North America and then the Clovis culture came out of them so it was, it's a very Europeans were here first kind of theory um, the archaeologists who put the theory forth they're actually very good archaeologists um, very well respected but their theory is loved by white nationalists they launched themselves or grabbed this theory as hard as they can um, to prove that white people were here first and the really frustrating thing is that these archaeologists are very aware of this but they refuse to speak out against it. In a, a newspaper interview, one of the archaeologists actually literally said, it's not my problem to speak out about this. It kind of is. Um, and also, CBC recently aired a documentary about the Salutrian hypothesis featuring these archaeologists, featuring the possibility that this theory was true which just lends a lot of credence to what these white nationalists are arguing. Because again, in this documentary, none of the use of by white nationalists was dressed and when interviewing the the director about this, the Globe and Mail was asking her, why aren't you talking about that side of things? Um, And she claims it wasn't, she didn't want to talk about it because she didn't want to give any sort of credence to it. But honestly, what's worse, talking about it and saying no, that's an inappropriate use of it, or staying silent? which comes across as more supportive. And then at the bottom here, this is an excerpt from the AFA, the Assatra Folk Assembly's Declaration of Purpose, where they openly admit that they are only concerned with the preservation and the protection of white people. A lot of racism. Here's another example. This again is a book that I found in chapters, easily available. There were multiple copies on the bookshelf exploring the possibility of ancient giants in the Americas. Uh, this is also, giants are another popular pseudo-archaeological topic. Um, the large burial mounds in the United States in particular, a lot of people argue that those are were created by giants. And so this individual has written a book all about evidence for giants in North America and he has a chapter on giants in Canada. And so when you read these excerpts here that I've sort of outlined, um, look at some of the really awful language that he's using he's speaking about first nations people in the maritimes and calls them um, on says they were on the extreme lower ends of the developmental evolutionary stage and then he goes on to refer to them as a primitive race so there's one of the major harms of pseudoarchaeology really really perpetuates a lot of racism another really um, big example is Nazi archaeology. So the Nazis used archaeology as a propaganda tool. It was led by Heinrich Himmler, that's who you see on the left, um, to promote nationalistic pride. So they used archaeology to search for proof of their Aryan ancestry, and the Aryan culture that they speak about is one that they completely invented to justify all the things they were doing. They argue that the Aryans were a superior culture um, and they exaggerated and they manufactured a lot of archaeological evidence to provide proof and justification for Aryan supremacy and superiority. So there's another example. Pseudoarchaeology also encourages the looting and the destruction of sites and, and artifacts because these people need to find proof to support all these claims they're making. So this again is a chat room conversation um, regarding giants and burial mounds. Um, And the first comment here, at one point this individual states that the fact that giants exist, not to mention the mounds, knock out Native Americans as the originals because the Native Aboriginal people admit these burial grounds pre-existed them. I haven't heard that. I have not heard anybody claim that. Um, and then the second individual here is encouraging the, the original poster to go to these mounds and start digging them up with a shovel um, to find this proof of giants. So he's actively encouraging the looting and destruction of these burial mounds. And shows like American Digger and Diggers just further work to misrepresent archaeology. Um, they place all the emphasis on these objects that they're excavating out of the ground um, and they attach a monetary value to absolutely everything Um, but in archaeology one of the things that we we really need to get across is there is no monetary value for anything and to be honest the objects themselves aren't what's important it's the context in which the objects are found so when you have these groups who are going and just digging them out of the ground because they want to see how much money they can get it's it's worthless. It's meaningless, and it completely destroys these sites. Um, and these are basically just televised looting. Um, that's the way I would describe it. And fortunately, many many archaeologists are very outspoken about shows like these. So there's some good support there. <coughs> so pseudo archaeology and social media. Social media can be a very very powerful platform. It's a huge platform. In 2017, 2.5 billion people used some form of social media. Um, if we look at the numbers for Facebook, and which I'm including Messenger into, Instagram, Twitter, they have a combined monthly use of 440 users. 440, sorry, 440 million monthly users use these platforms. So information can be shared super quickly with potentially up to hundreds of millions of people with the click of a button. You can find it on Twitter. Um, Here's an example. There was a recent article published. uh, Some Greek researchers claimed that they found in one of the texts um, the possibility that ancient Greeks had the potential to reach Canada. They never, I read the article, they never said that the Greeks reached Canada. They only said that, you know, if they wanted to, they could have. Uh, On Twitter, it was obviously reinterpreted. Within a, a day, this happened. Uh, you can find it on Facebook. Here's another one of those websites, a Facebook page supporting the Salutrin hypothesis I was talking about and, and Europeans first. And you can even find it on Instagram. Um, and it's not like these people are actually tagging this as pseudoarchaeology. In in any of these, nobody has actually included the word pseudoarchaeology. But when you're looking for certain keywords and certain themes that I've talked about, that's how you begin to find all of this stuff. So, I asked in the survey, I asked Canadians where on social media were they seeing um, articles and videos about aliens, um, aliens and UFOs. 25% reported finding these on Facebook or, or somehow being exposed to them on Facebook. 23% uh, reported YouTube. 12% reported Twitter. I asked the exact same question related to archaeological mysteries and controversies. Again, I was using very specific keywords and almost identical results. Facebook, 27%. Uh, YouTube, 23 Twitter, 12%. Um, so... We, we have an idea now where people are seeing these, so we sort of know where to kind of insert ourselves into the conversation. If most people are seeing this stuff on Facebook, maybe Facebook is a great place for us to go and start holding conversations. It also doesn't surprise me Facebook is number one. It's still, an, if we subdivide those 440 million people, I can't remember the exact numbers, but Facebook is still the most popular. So, how, as we, we as archaeologists, how can we use social media? Again, you know, with these 440 million people um, using social media each month, it can be a really, really great tool for archaeologists to use. We have access to, to massive platforms, massive numbers of people. Um, it can be a really great tool for us to interact with the public and interact with people who are really interested in archaeology. Um, Dr. Lorna Richardson uh, in the UK has done some really, really cool work and research looking at how social media is used by um, archaeological organizations. She only focused on the UK and she was looking at archaeological authority, how it can be challenged online, um, and how organizations use social media to respond to these challenges. And she acknowledges that pseudo-archaeology isn't as big in the UK as it is in North America. I think it would be really, really interesting to take her research program and apply it to North America where we do have such a prevalence of pseudo um, just to see if there are differences. But she cautions that even with social media, archaeologists are still very much at risk of using a top-down model of authority or strategy where we're still saying, well, I'm the expert and you need to listen to what I tell you to listen to, and what I tell you to read and watch." Um, And people start to to distrust us. Um, As a result, we come across super arrogant, let's be honest, super arrogant. Um, So we need to try to avoid this. If we want to actually have meaningful meaningful interactions with the public, we need to really try to somehow avoid this top-down strategy of us standing at the top and yelling down at everybody. We need to consider the the interests and the needs of our audience, and not just our own. So how can we do this? Um, We have to engage with people, we have to open up, we have to work on removing all of this gatekeeping in (coughs) archaeology, listen to what people have to say, but we also do need to be prepared for the the interactions, the, the reactions we might get. We have to be prepared that we might not get a reaction from somebody that we're (coughs) hoping to get. Um, Here's an example that came out just last night on Twitter. Dr. Norton, she was talking about how she spent the day with a rancher um, who had this big arrowhead collection and wanted to show it to them. And apparently he was really, really interested in archeology. span He wants to learn more and kept referencing a, a book of his, a reference book that he was using to learn all sorts of information about these different arrowheads. He was very knowledgeable about these arrowheads. So she finally asks, well, what book are you talking about? And he refers to this one called The Overstreet, which is a book she had never heard of. So he's like, okay, I'll go grab it for you, pulls it off the shelf, and it turns out it's a price guide. It's a price guide for adding monetary value to these projectile points. That's what he's using to try to learn about the the projectile points, the arrowheads. And that's because, as she rightfully sort of points out, it's because archaeologists have failed him. The only access to archaeology he has to try to learn more is a price guide, because we're not putting enough information out there. We're not communicating enough. That doesn't necessarily mean you do have to engage with everybody. Um, Don't engage with, with trolls, if you can help it, people who are intentionally trolling you. Uh, has anybody heard of the term sea lining"? It's pretty new. So sea lining comes from this comic here, and it refers to people who intentionally challenge you. Uh, they have repeated questions, demands for proof, and the whole goal isn't that they actually want to learn. They just want to wear you down until you're finally like, okay, like I'm done, and they can declare a win and continue supporting their own ideas. Um, It's become quite popular in social media. I see sea lions all the time. and To be honest, it also comes (coughs) with being a woman on social media. It can be kind of a scary place for women. Uh, We get challenged all the time. One of my favorite Twitter interactions, I can't even remember what we were talking about, but I actually did mention how women are constantly challenged. Everything we say, we are constantly challenged. Literally within 16 seconds, two guys pop up and they're like, wait, hang on a moment. I'm like, you're proving my point. <laughs> it was wonderful. It was an amazing, amazing interaction. So, I mean, feel free not to engage with trolls if you're not willing to. Um, keep your eyes open for sea lions. But otherwise, talk to people. If they're coming at you with questions, um, answer these questions and, and do your best to share what you know and, and your knowledge. Um, you know, if, if one major contributor to pseudoarchaeology is our gatekeeping, then we need to open those gates. Um, and social media is definitely a tool we can use to do that. So here are just some suggestions I have on how we can work towards opening these gates um, and having more meaningful conversations and interactions. So first of all, follow news stories that are related to archaeology, follow news websites even um, so that you can see when they're posting things, read the comments below. Sometimes admittedly the comments are very icky but that gives you a chance to see what are non-archaeologists saying. What do they think? What are things they're interested in? If they're asking more questions or, or not really understanding anything, perhaps this is an opportunity for us to say, you know what, let me share a little bit of how we know what we know in this case, and um, go from there. Follow and use hashtags. Um, I <laughs> I used to be pretty like anti-hashtag. I used to think they were quite silly. I still do at times think they're quite silly, and use funny hashtags just for giggles but hashtags do offer a really great way to connect with a much broader audience um, especially if, a chance, if you have a chance to, to use a hashtag that's becoming quite popular so for example a while ago on Twitter I guess a couple years ago now on Twitter there was a hashtag called actual living scientists that became very very viral and you basically just explained a little bit about yourself with the hashtag actual living Scientist, Um and it just went out. It was amazing and I ended up getting a lot of follows from non-archaeologists from that, um, which is perfect. That's what I want. I want to be able to talk to the public. Um, You can also follow hashtags to see what people are saying. Again, kind of like reading the comments below a news article, follow the hashtags and see what kind of comments are, are attached to these hashtags. And then use hashtags yourself. Use the same hashtags to connect your comments with your target audience. Um, I didn't include a photo of it but uh, <coughs> Dr. David S. Anderson, who I mentioned earlier, he's really awesome about always including the hashtag ancient aliens when he's talking about ancient aliens, um, but all the ancient aliens believers or uh, watchers of the show also use the hashtag. So if you go to Twitter now and you search up hashtag ancient aliens you see a lot of his comments where he's talking about Um, the negative aspect of Ancient Aliens and how it's incorrect, that kind of thing. So using hashtags can connect your comments um, with the target audience. And use popular memes, again, for the same reason as hashtags. So for example, everybody knows that the Ancient Aliens meme of Tsukolo standing there saying aliens and he's got big hair and his hands are there. this is Jens Notroff. He works at Gobekli Tepe, and he's constantly responding to uh, conspiracy theories that come out about Gobekli Tepe. There are a lot. It's a hot spot for conspiracy theories. Um, I swear every day he's doing these great Twitter threads about, okay, no, it wasn't aliens. So David Anderson created this meme um, of Jan saying, I'm not saying it was aliens because it wasn't aliens. Um, and it's fantastic. People really like this meme. It's a lot of fun to use. And this is an example of uh, a tweet I put out a while ago. There was this meme going around called the historian sign bunny um, and people were putting this little image up and all sorts of different um, information in there. So I took it as an advantage or took it as an opportunity to say just because ancient stone structures look complicated doesn't mean they were built by aliens. Uh, And little did I know it would explode. My mentions were a mess for a week. I still occasionally get comments um, but it had a total of 903,000 impressions. 903,000 people came across this tweet at some point. I had a total of 36,000 engagements, um, including 25,500 likes. There were 60, almost 6,500, well, 6,400 retweets. Some of those had comments attached to them. Some of them didn't. Um, so it, it gave a really interesting perspective and a really interesting opportunity to uh, hear a lot about what people actually think about aliens. Most of the comments were very supportive of this, but I did actually come across some big UFO believers and big alien believers, uh, some of which were quite nasty, uh, and some of which were much more civil. But it was a really interesting opportunity. And it really goes to show as well an example of the reach that social media can have through Some small, I think, what are we up to now? We have 280 characters on on Twitter now. um, And look at what these 200, how many people these 280 characters can reach. Another thing to to think about is (coughs) writing a blog post, um, if you have your own website, or look for opportunities to write for other websites as well. And like hashtags, make sure you're including keyword tags um, to help with search engines. So this is just an example from from my website. So far in 2018, uh, posts from my site have been viewed almost all around the world. The majority of them, those 4,600, are from the United States, but massive reach. And then using certain keywords, if you search Canadian Canadian pseudo-archaeology on Google, you'll find my post on the first page of Google um, because of, of certain keywords that I've included. And then also uh, participate in podcast discussions. If you have your own podcast, awesome. Um, If not, look for opportunities to be involved in podcasts. Many podcasts put calls out looking for speakers. Um, I've been on a a number of archaeology podcasts, which has been fun and wonderful and and really fun chance to chat with my colleagues. Uh, And then I also recently had a chance to be part of a non-archaeology podcast. Um, This is a brand new podcast called Halfway Expert. Um, where the host the goal is the host spends a week beforehand trying to teach himself about the topic in this case archaeology he tried to teach himself about archaeology and then during the podcast he tells me all the things that he's learned and then I sit there saying yes no not exactly that kind of thing but it was a really cool opportunity for to see where are non-archaeologists getting our information and what kind of information do they have access to? What was he able to learn? Um, and what was he able to learn that was accurate? Um, so it was a lot of fun. It was a really cool opportunity. And these are just some of the comments that we received from other people who listen to the podcast. Um, talking about all the different things they had learned. And it was really cool because my entire goal was just to to talk to people and open up this information and let people learn about this information. And it sounds like it worked pretty well. People are really interested in it and have have learned quite a bit. So in conclusion, You know, how can we look at, uh, how can we attempt to cut down pseudo-archaeology? And really, we need to just stop our gatekeeping. We need to be able to open up archaeology, or be willing to open up archaeology to people who don't work within the field, who want to learn more about it. Um, You know, I sort of take the approach, my experiences as a first-gen student in in something called the hidden curriculum, where (coughs) I was trying to learn the system while I was actively in the system. It's difficult for first gen students, you know, I don't, I didn't really have many people who could tell me this is how you do it or this is how you do that. So I sort of apply the same approach to archaeology because I'm also first gen archaeologist. Um, I want to open up that that hidden curriculum, reveal that hidden curriculum, and the public wants to know about archaeology. The, the fact that there's so much pseudo-archaeology shows there's an interest in the ancient past. We just need to do a better job of making ourselves and our knowledge and our skills accessible and sharing it with people. We don't wanna have to stop hoarding all this stuff. We really want to share it. Um, I mean, don't share sensitive data. There's a lot of things that we do at work that we can't share um, for for various reasons, privacy reasons. But we can share our tools in how we go about understanding what we're looking at and how we, we work to, to understand all the different techniques we use and theories we use. That's kind of stuff we can share Um, and just as we sort of as I mentioned just as we open the hidden curriculum of university to first-gen students uh, we need to open the hidden curriculum of archaeology social media is a really fantastic opportunity to do that it's a huge public platform we have the potential to connect with so many different people Um, I met Sean through Twitter this is our first time meeting in person Um, but we know each other on Twitter so, we need to be willing to open up and, and share our toolkit, and and work together um, through this shared knowledge to hopefully find or work toward an end for harmful pseudoarchaeology. That's all I got to say.
0: You for joining us today. For more on the Department of History, its programs, and its events, please visit carleton.ca slash history. I'm Sean Graham.